Well, let's take our Bibles and be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 6 this evening, 1 Timothy chapter 6. So good to see each of you here tonight, and thank you for coming to be with us. Uh, anybody here tonight that wasn't here this morning? Anybody here tonight that was not here this morning? Well, welcome. We're glad to have you with us tonight, and uh, we appreciate each of you coming and being here. And uh, it's good to be back at uh, Berean Baptist. And many of you are old friends. I've been here a number of times, and I certainly appreciate uh, your pastor and allowing us to come and host the conference here. He's hosting the conference. I'm just preaching the conference. And, uh, but I appreciate that ever so much. And uh, it's good to see uh, faithful faces, people that I, I've met before that you're still here. That's wonderful. That's great. It's good to see new faces as well. That's a blessing. We praise the Lord uh, for that as well. First Timothy chapter 6 in your Bibles, if you would please. First Timothy chapter 6. Do covet your prayers for the meetings throughout the week. Encourage you to invite some guests uh, with you tomorrow as you go back to work. Invite some folks to come and be with us next uh, tomorrow night. That would be a blessing. And uh, then feel free to ask questions. You, you might be saying, well, I feel left out. I'm not, uh, I'm not a young person. I'm not getting on the cookies. And I'd like to have some answers to questions. Come up and see me anytime. If you have a question, if you don't understand something I'm saying, it's not clear to you, uh, you have any questions, just come on up and talk to me. I'll be more than happy to talk to you. This week, I'm here. I'm at Berean Baptist Church in White House, Tennessee. Wherever that's at on the face of the earth, I just know it's north of Nashville. And, uh, and so that's, yeah, that's this week for me. And uh, so if I can be of help in any way, shape, form, fashion, uh, just, you know, I'm here. I'm here to be a help to you and uh, to be a friend to you if I can in any way, uh, shape, form, or uh, possible. Uh, Pastor uh, Lang asked me to give you a little heads up about the week and where we're headed after that. Tonight we're going to deal with the scientific accuracy of the Bible we started on the Bible today on purpose and really just focused upon the Word of God in the first three messages of the conference because we want you to realize uh, how we know the Bible is the Word of God. We want you to realize that the Bible is true and trustworthy in what it has to say. We also want you to understand that uh, the Bible and true science are not in conflict. But you heard what I said. The Bible and what kind of science? True science. There's a lot of science that, as this verse of Scripture is going to tell us, is falsely so-called, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But we're dealing with the Bible to begin with. We want you to understand that we've got a firm foundation. We don't want to walk away from the Word of God. We don't want to reject the Word of God. We want to stand on the Word of God. I like the hymn, perhaps you sing it here at your church, The Bible Stands. And the Word of God's going to stand when everything else falls and everything else is gone. When heaven and earth is gone... The word of the Lord is still standing. Amen? It's eternal. And uh, so I want you to understand that. And that's why we begin with the emphasis upon the Bible. Tomorrow night, uh, Lord willing, we're going to deal with the existence of God. So uh, if you have ever been asked the question, how do you know God really is real? How do you know he really does exist? Uh, Instead of standing there and saying, I wish Pastor Lang were here to help me out and answer this question. We want to give you some truths from the Word of God to know where to go, how to answer the question, in dealing with the existence of God. We do believe God is real and that He does exist. But we're living in a world today of doubt and skepticism where atheism and agnosticism is on the increase. And, uh, and so we need to have answers for that issue. 
So we're going to deal with the existence of, of God tomorrow night. Tuesday night, Lord willing, we're going to deal with the issue of origins. And I'm going to specifically deal, this is not a creation evolution message on Tuesday night. It's a message about origins and why it's important for what you believe about where you came from. Why is that issue important? Why is it important that we believe that we came from God, that God was the creator of all of us? And we're going to deal with that on Tuesday night. That's an important issue. So we'll deal with uh, origins on Tuesday night. Wednesday night, we're going to deal with the issue of pain and suffering. The number one reason why people reject the existence of God is because they cannot reconcile in their mind pain and suffering, the existence of pain and suffering with a just and loving God. How can there be a just and loving God when there's such pain and suffering going on in the face of the earth? And so we're going to deal with that on Wednesday night, Thursday night. Why is the Christian faith the preferred faith above all faiths? Today, there are a lot of people saying it doesn't really matter. As long as you believe something, it doesn't really matter what you believe. And we believe that the Christian faith is the true faith. And so we'll talk about that on Thursday night, Lord willing. And then Friday night is uh, Blue Light Special. You know, Kmart. You guys still have Kmarts up here? We don't have them either. But they used to have Blue Light Specials. So Friday night's the Blue Light Special. You show up and find out what the blue light is flashing Friday night. I'll probably tell you Thursday night what we're going to do. Well, if you're physically able to do so, let's stand together while we read a couple of verses, then I'll pray and let you be seated. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is writing through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy is a younger man. Paul's the older man, and he's really looking to Timothy to carry on the work of God after he's gone. And he charges Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. He says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. God's committed a lot of things to our trust. The question is, are we keeping them? Are we keeping them? Keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science. Notice what the Bible says. Falsely so-called. Interesting expression, isn't it? Timothy, watch out for oppositions of science that is falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are the eternal God of this universe, the one and only true living God who saw fit to give us the revelation of the Word of God. And not only the revelation of the written Word of God, but the revelation of the living Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And we thank you that your written Word and your living Word is eternal. Firm foundation that we can stand upon. I pray that you'd help in our time here tonight Help us have the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God to understand truths from your word. And Father, help us to be people that are equipped to give an answer to every man that asketh us a reason of the hope that's in us with meekness and fear. 
Work in our hearts and lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In our text in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Bible warns about facing oppositions of science, falsely so-called. I don't know why it is that people are prone to take the authority of science over the authority of the Word of God, other than the fact of the propensity of the human heart toward unbelief. I think the human heart just gravitates toward unbelief. It just has it within it. Instead of going toward God, the heart goes away from God. And perhaps some of that has to do with the fact that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And when you come toward the light, things begin to get exposed, do they not? And when they begin to get exposed, then you have to deal with those things. So there are many people in our world today who take the authority of science over the authority of the Word of God. Literally, we have thousands upon thousands of young people on college campuses across America who are being duped and deceived by what 1 Timothy 6, 19, or or verse 20 calls science falsely so-called. And I think the Bible uses that expression on purpose. I know that the Bible uses it on, on purpose because God always reveals the truth as he wants it revealed. It says something about it. Science, falsely so-called, not all science is true science. It's that simple. Uh, true science, by definition, is simply this, a, comprehension, a comprehensive understanding of the truth of any subject comprehensive understanding of the key word, truth, of any subject. Science is about discovering truth. Well, it's supposed to be. Is it not? And science is built upon the thesis that we are alive, that we're awake, and that our senses are trustworthy. So science is something that we are to observe. It is something that we are to test. It is something that we are to see if it is consistent. There are five rules that have to be followed in order for something to be true science. And I just share this with you by way of introduction. And just follow me. It's not not that hard. So even if you don't like science, you'll get something out of this. First of all, true science... For something to be true requires a witness and a report. Secondly, the witness has to be credible. And the report that they give must be intelligible. Thirdly, facts must be measured by our senses, not by guesses, wishes, or emotions. That's where evolution is departing from to science. Because it is not measured by our senses. It's only guesses, wishful thinking about the origin of man, and fueled by a lot of emotions. Number four, the examiner must look at all the facts without prejudice, including the Bible and Jesus Christ. 
Have you noticed in this politically correct world that you can talk about almost anything other than Jesus Christ? Tell me that you're not prejudiced. And then fifthly, the examiner must reject theory when, it, when the facts don't fit. The facts do not fit the model of evolution. Is it rejected? Or is it taught as fact to our young people in our public schools? It's taught as fact, isn't it? When in reality, it's not the law of evolution, it is the theory of evolution. It's not observable. You cannot repeat it, and it's not true. And yet it is taught to our young people as true. And so therefore they're taught that the Bible is not accurate in what it says. We have oppositions of science falsely so-called. I'm told that over in Paris, France, there is a library that houses... Um, obsolete scientific textbooks. Scientific textbooks that were used in the past in history, but now they're obsolete. Some of the things in them are no longer in agreement with modern science today. And if you would take those books in that library and line them up one against another, against another, against another, against another, they would stretch for a distance of three and a half miles. I'm just illustrating the point that what once was embraced as scientific fact has now been discarded and set aside. There's a lot that goes under the banner of science, just like the Bible says, that is falsely so-called. Now, here tonight, we're going to think about the scientific accuracy of the Bible. And when we deal with the scientific accuracy of the Bible, there are some thoughts that you've got to establish before you begin to deal with the scientific accuracy of the Bible. For example, uh, hold your place here in Timothy and go with me to the book of Job, Job 42, if you would please. The book of Job. It's right before the book of Psalms. If you close your Bible, open in the middle, you ought to hit the book of Psalms. Go to your left to the book of Job, if you would please. The book of Job, Job chapter 42. If you think it's the book of Job, for a long time in my life as well. Job chapter 42, if you would please. Some things that we need to understand as we get started here tonight. As we're dealing with the scientific accuracy of the Bible, number one, the Bible writers did not always grasp or understand everything they were writing. Now we saw this morning that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That God literally breathed into the words, into the writers that he was using, the human writers, if you would please. And as those men were pinning the words of God, they did not always understand what they were writing. They didn't have to understand what they were writing. It was not God's intent for them to grasp and understand everything they were writing. It was God's intent for them to be faithful writers of what he was giving to them. And in Job chapter 42, notice what Job says in verse 3. In Job chapter 42 and verse 3, it says, Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge. Therefore have I uttered that I understood what? Not. Things too wonderful for 
me which I knew not. Did the writers of the Bible always comprehend and understand everything they were writing down? The answer is what? No. They didn't always understand those things. That takes us back to what we saw in the Sunday school hour this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So let me say just very carefully here tonight, the, the, the writers of the Bible were not responsible for the content of the Bible. They were responsible for faithfully recording the content that God gave them. Where did the content come from? It came from God. They were just writers. And God was breathing His words into them through inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And we believe in what we refer to as verbal plenary inspiration. Now those are big words and they simply mean this, verbal. The very words of the Bible were inspired by God. The writers did not choose their words God gave them their words. Did you follow me? So the very words of the Bible were inspired. Plenary. What that means is that the entire Bible was inspired of God. From Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22, the word of God was inspired by God. Verbal inspiration. So understand as we begin to think about science in the Bible tonight, we're going to look at some scientific truths that are found in the word of God that the writers of scripture did not comprehend. They didn't understand. They were not the going scientific truths of the day and age in which they were living, but they are the truth of science. Because God is the author of science. God is the maker of science. God is the originator of science. Secondly, let me say that many times the Bible writers were recording scientific truths hundreds of years before men of scientific mind ever discovered them. So how did these guys know these scientific truths? Only as God did what? Gave them. Another evidence of the fact that the Bible is the Word of God and not just merely the men of God, our, our men that wrote it. Thirdly, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. So if you, th- you take the Bible out and say, all right, I'm going to study science from the Bible. It's not a scientific textbook. It, it, it speaks about science, but it's not a textbook on science. However, when it touches on science... The Bible is always 100% accurate. Always 100% accurate. We're talking about true science. We're not talking about science falsely so-called. True science. And then lastly, if you would please, God did this. He recorded these scientific truths hundreds of years before men of scientific mind discovered them to validate the fact that the Bible is the Word of God rather than merely the words of men. God is wise, is he not? He is all wise, and God is able to do that. Well, having said those things, let's look at some scientific statements that are given to us in the Bible. Let's start in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, if you would please. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look tonight at some scientific statements that are recorded for us in the Word of God. Scientific truth that was recorded in the Bible Literally hundreds of years before men of scientific mind discovered these truths. We start with the book of Genesis because the book of Genesis is a book that often gets criticized. It often gets attacked by the skeptics of our day. Yet in Genesis chapter 1, it gives us the account of creation. We see a very definite scientific truth, a law of nature that God established in this world. In Genesis chapter 1, notice if you would please... 
in verse 24. And the Lord, and God said, Genesis 1, 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures. Look at the next phrase. Next three words. Say them out loud. After his kind. So God brought forth the living creatures after his kind. And creeping things and beasts of the earth. Here it is again. Say it with me. After his kind. And it was so. Verse 25. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. The Bible here is giving us a law of nature. And that law of nature is simply the fact that life always produces after its own kind. It always makes, uh, produces after its own kind. Can we test it with our senses? The answer is yes. Can we see it? Yes. Is it measurable? Yes. Is it repetitive? Yes. Is it a consistent law of nature? Answer is what? Yes. So we're dealing in the realm of not scientific theory, but in the realm of scientific fact, if you would please. True science. Because true science deals with the facts, if you would please. And, uh, and it's interesting. You know, if your cat... Uh, is going to have uh, baby cats. What do we call them? Kittens. And cats always have kittens. And dogs always have puppies. And ducks always have ducks. And zebras always have zebras. And giraffes always have giraffes. And lions always have lions. And people always have people. Babies. They may look like something else at times, but <laughs> we'll not go there tonight because Pastor Ling said, I've been kind today and I don't want to get unkind. God established within the various kinds a law of nature that they would always reproduce after their own kind. You know, terrible thing if Pastor Ling were down at the hospital, his wife was delivering a baby, and he was out in the uh, waiting room, and all of a sudden the doctor came out and said, uh, Pastor Ling, I want you to know something. You are the proud father of a new giraffe. <laughs> ah! Would that ever happen? No. No. Now, years was an article in the newspaper uh, where uh, they, they quote-unquote over in England uh, said they, they took a dog and they took a cat and they crossbred them together and now uh, this animal came out. It was a dat. Was that true or was that false? false. It was false because you cannot breed a dog with a cat. <coughs> God made it a law of nature. Kinds always reproduce after their own kinds. That's why one reason why we know the theory of evolution is so false. You see, if the theory of evolution were true, everything evolved millions and millions of years ago, started with one primordial source, until what we have today, if you would please, there would have had been a time in history when one kind was turning into a different kind, turning into a different kind, turning into a different kind, turning into a different kind until we have all the kinds that we have today. 
right? If, if evolution were true. But that's scientifically impossible. It can't happen. It never has happened. God, from the very beginning, established all the various what? Kinds. And the fossil record verifies the fact that when you find life on the face of the earth, it is there in the fossil record in all forms. There are no transitional forms of life. If that were really true, there would be transitional forms all over the face of the earth in the fossils. But that's not what the record of the fossils say. When life appeared, it appeared suddenly, abundantly, in all forms. And that's what God did. That's how God created life. So here in Genesis chapter 1, we find a scientific truth that the Word of God makes. And that is that life always reproduces after its own kind. Let's take our Bibles and look at another one. Look over in Leviticus chapter 17, if you would please. Leviticus chapter 17. And in Leviticus chapter 17, here the Bible teaches us a truth that you and I know today. But for hundreds of years, people on the face of the earth did not understand this truth. In Leviticus chapter 17, if you would please. Leviticus chapter 17. Look down with me in verse 11. In Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, the Bible says this, For the life of the flesh is in the what? The blood. When the Bible here uses the word life, it literally means vitality. If you look it up in the Hebrew, the word means vitality. The vitality of our flesh is in our what? Blood. We know that we have a circulatory system, takes blood, travels around our bodies, and that's what keeps us going. The vitality of our flesh is in our blood. He goes on to say, I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it's the blood that make an atonement for the soul. Uh, that's an Old Testament way of saying, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I didn't take you there to get into the last part of the verse. I took you there to look at the first part of the verse. The vitality, the life of our flesh is in our blood. The book of Leviticus is uh, one of the older books in the, in the Bible. If you have a Schofield reference, you'll see it was dated 1490 B.C., before Christ. Men didn't always believe this, nor did they understand this. There was a time in history where doctors believed that blood was the carrier of disease within the body. And if someone became ill, they would actually take blood out of the body. And that practice was known as bloodletting, if you would please. And it started around 350 years before Christ. And it continued all the way up to the beginning of the 19th century. You're sick? Something in your blood. So they would put leeches on people that would suck blood out. Or they would take a razor and they would cut you and they would bleed you. Because the idea was, of, of science of those days, that there's disease, it's in the blood... So therefore, we need to remove some of that blood to get rid of the disease. Do you understand our first president, George Washington, died in part because of that? He contracted chronic pneumonia. The doctors of the day. What do you do? You drain some blood. And he was so weakened because of his sickness that he didn't survive as a result of that. That's where the, the red stripe comes in the barber's pole. 
They used to be blood letters. And yet we know today that you don't take blood out of a person when they're sick. Many times you put blood in them. We call that transfusions, don't we? And, um, and who was right? The minds of the day or God's word? God's word. God's word is right. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Let's go to Job chapter 26, if you would please. Let me give you some more scientific truths that we want to look at here tonight. Job chapter 26. Job chapter 26, verse 7, actually gives us two different scientific uh, truths in the same verse. I think it's interesting. Job chapter 26, if you would please. In Job chapter 26, the Bible says this, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. So there are two scientific statements that are made in Job chapter 26 in verse 7. The first one is, He stretcheth out the north over the what? Empty place. The second one is, He hangs the earth upon nothing. Now, if you and I went to an observatory where they have these huge telescopes. I was in uh, one a few years ago out in uh, uh, Arizona. And um, we went to this observatory, my wife and I went to this observatory, and they, inside this observatory, it's, it's a huge dome and a gigantic telescope. I mean, it's huge. And uh, they opened the dome up. They took the telescope and they pointed it a certain direction out in the universe and they showed us a star in the universe that is so far out there that we could never ever see it with our human eyes. I mean, it was way out in space. Way out in space. If we were to take that telescope and point it to the north, you know what we'd see in the north? Nothing. Nothing. There's an empty place in the north. Astronomers refer to it as a supervoid or a northern cavern or a huge hole. They can't explain it. They don't understand it. They say it's 1.8 billion light years across. Whoa, that's not like this. It's huge. And God says, He hangeth the earth upon nothing, but at first He says, He stretches out the north over the what? Empty place. So if you ever have an opportunity to go to an observatory and you can talk them into pointing their telescope toward the north, and you get down and you look into that thing, you'll see nothing. Just a dark hole in space. God made it that way. Now, why did God make it that way? I can't answer that. That's a question for Pastor Lane. We don't know why. We don't know why. But God says he hangeth the earth over the empty place. Right? He stretches out the earth over the north, over the empty place. And then he hangeth the earth upon nothing. When I was a kid growing up, I remember 
when we sent the men to the moon. How many of you were kids when that happened? Okay, all right. Remember sitting there in awe and amazement of, uh, of the pictures they were sending back of earth? I wasn't so amazed by what they were seeing on the moon. I was amazed by what they were showing of the earth. I mean, there it was, this beautiful planet upon which I was living. And it was hung out there in space upon absolutely nothing. Nothing. Now, the earth is huge. And it weighs a lot. Scientists estimated that it weighs 6 billion trillion tons. And they tell us that it would take a steel cable 8,000 miles in diameter to hang the earth upon, to hold it up. So let's say that we had this huge, gigantic Christmas tree. And we're going to take the earth and make it one of our ornaments. So we say, well, we've got to go down to Walmart and get us a, a hook to hang our ornament upon. 8,000 miles in diameter to hold the earth up. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. And God took that planet and hung it in space upon nothing. Is that the truth or not? It is the truth, isn't it? But back when that was written, popular modern day science of their days didn't understand that at all and didn't believe it. Mythology. Mythology. The Greeks thought that the earth was on the back of a guy by the name of Atlas. We've all seen those pictures, right? Looks like Pastor Lang holding the earth up. Maybe I'll quit teasing him. Well, maybe not. And that was so prevalent that if you go down to the library and you look for a book of maps, what's it still called? Atlas. Atlas. There were other theories that were out there that were prevalent as well. The Egyptians thought that the earth was like a disc, like a saucer, if you would please, had a ring of mountains around it to keep the water from running off the edge of it. And they thought it was held up by five poles. The Hindus thought that the earth was on the back of this gigantic elephant. So you got the elephant out here, the earth on the back of the elephant, the elephant standing on a turtle, and the turtle swimming in a cosmic sea. Earthquakes were a result of the elephant shaking its back. Did the Bible record any of the mythology of the day, or did the Bible record the truth? It recorded the truth. Because God is the author of science. God is the originator of science. You see, when the Bible does touch on science, it's 100% accurate. It's not in conflict with true science. It's conflict with science falsely so called. And this truth really wasn't discovered until 1697 by Sir Isaac Newton. He was the first to discover that the earth is suspended in space in orbit by attraction of the sun. 
And yet the Bible recorded the truth. Look over in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We'll just give you some of these scientific truths. It's good to have them down. Be able to use them to show people that, hey, the Bible is scientific accurate, scientifically accurate. In Isaiah chapter 40, look in verse 22, please. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, the Bible says this. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the heavens thereof are like grasshoppers, or as grasshoppers, that stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Notice the scientific truth at the very beginning of the verse. It's he that sitteth on the what? Circle of the earth. The word circle means sphere, if you would please. A roundness. It has reference to the fact that the earth is round. For hundreds of years, men in human history believed that the earth was flat. Aristotle probably was the first person to teach that the earth was round. He lived not quite 400 years before Christ uh, came on the face of the earth. But uh, he taught it, but very few people accepted it. Very few people believed it. Uh, The Vikings probably were the first people to actually proved that the earth was round because they were selling the seas, were they not? And, uh, and they were selling the seas about 60, 80 years after Christ's death. And yet the fact that the earth was flat still was a prevalent idea all the way up until Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. What did people think? You go too far out there and you're going to fall off the edge. You can't sell too far out there because you're going, to, you're going to be a goner. And yet the Bible says that the earth is what? A circle. It's, it's round. Again, it doesn't record any of the thought of the day. It just records the truth as it really is. So there's no foolishness there. There's no folly there. There's no myth, mythological views there. The earth is round. Look over, if you would please, In Jeremiah chapter 33, over to your right. Jeremiah chapter 33. Of all the scientific truths that we will look at tonight, this one is my favorite. Because it deals with the stars. And I like looking at the stars. I don't know why, I just like it. I think it's beautiful. You go out on a clear night... You're out where there aren't any lights. What do you see? See the stars. My wife and I went to the Grand Canyon in 2005. I'd always wanted to go to the Grand Canyon. And I received an honorary doctorate degree from Pensacola Christian College. And to our surprise, when we came home from that, the church had gotten together and said, we're going to send pastor to congratulate him on this to the Grand Canyon. So it was a trip of a lifetime. And we were able to plan our trip so that we went to the north rim of the Grand Canyon, and we also went to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And to the north rim, we came in from the state of Utah, drove down to the north rim, got there, there's this huge lodge that has a window that is huge. It's it's huge. It's taller than this wall. And you can see right out to the Grand Canyon. 
It's just, if you've never seen it, it's breathtaking. And that night, on the other side of that window, there's maybe a 30-foot patio where they have chairs. And that night, we went out to those chairs and sat there and looked up in the sky. And as we looked up in the sky, I was not prepared for this. It was a white streak in the sky. There was an astronomer there with a telescope. He said, folks, you are looking at the Milky Way galaxy. And I said, whoa, we're in the Milky Way galaxy. And here is the Milky Way galaxy out here spread out like this. It was unbelievable. Now, I had taken some binoculars with me. And so I leaned back on that chair, and I put those binoculars up and looked into the sky. And all of a sudden, that white streak in the sky was transformed into individual stars. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stars. Wow. And in Jeremiah chapter 33, in verse 22... The Bible says this, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. Notice the Bible here says, The host of heaven, the stars in the sky, cannot be what? Numbered. The stars are without number, humanly speaking. You go back and study history. Remember our history books when we studied history as we were kids? Well, some of you are still kids. And you're studying history. You, you, re, you, know, you, you learned about these guys that would go out and they'd be laying out on, the, on a hillside somewhere. Laying out there during the night, right? They got their tablet out there. What are they doing? Counting the stars. Trying to. They laid out there in the, you know, in the night Counting the stars. There was, there was one guy back 130 years before Christ. He counted the stars. He said to, to people on the face of the earth, there are 1,022 stars. He was authoritative. He got them all. A couple hundred years after Christ, there was another guy out there counting stars, and he got four more than that guy. He said, that guy was wrong. He missed four. There's 1,026 stars out there. When the telescope was invented by Galileo in 1608, he looked up at the sky and he made this statement. You cannot number the stars. And what has been discovered since that time? Scientists estimate, this is an estimation, that in the Milky Way galaxy there are 100 billion stars. That's just an estimation. But what have we discovered? There's hundreds of other galaxies out there just like ours. Can we number the stars? No more than we can measure the sand of the sea. And yet the, the amazing, phenomenal thing about it all is this. Our God calls them all by name. He's got them all named. 
So when the Bible says that God knows the very hairs of your head, does He know the very hairs of your head? He does, doesn't He? What an amazing truth that God gives us here in the Word of God. Now, before we're out of time tonight, take your Bibles and turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would please. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want to issue, if I could please, here tonight, a threefold warning in light of what we're looking at here this evening. The scientific accuracy of the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would please. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Notice back in verse 20, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. which some professing that science falsely so-called. They've embraced it. They've taken hold of it. And what has happened as a result? They have erred concerning the faith. Erred concerning the faith. The Apostle Paul was warning Timothy Timothy, watch out for these oppositions that will cause you to err from the faith. And today we have multitudes across our nation who have erred from the faith, rejecting the Bible, rejecting God, rejecting biblical Christianity on the basis of unproved scientific theory and hypothesis. So my warning here tonight as we close is really threefold. Number one, don't let science persuade you that God's not real. Don't let science persuade you that God is not real. A couple of weeks ago, I took a trip to Florida. One of our former church members had to go to Florida to live because he came down with a disease. Well, he had a disease when I first met him. But he had a disease that eventually would take his life, and so he left us about four years ago to live with his sister. He lived with his sister for a couple of years and then he got, the disease got so bad that he had to be committed to institutional care. And he passed away a few weeks ago. So his sister called me up and asked if I would come and conduct his funeral service and I said I would be honored to do that. And on my way home, I stopped at a filling station, a gas station, and the receipt at the pump was out of paper. So I needed to go inside to get a receipt. And there was a guy that was in there. And so I grabbed a gospel track. Because I tried to practice what I refer to as CIO. Simply means contact is opportunity. If I have a contact with an individual, I at least have an opportunity to get a gospel track into their hand. I try to practice that. I can't say I'm 100% at it, but I try to practice that. So I took a track with me, went inside the filling station, got inside, and I asked him for a receipt, and he gave it to me. And I said, I'd like to give you something from the vital to read. And um, he said, uh, I'm not interested. He said, I'm an atheist. So I stood there, and I said, an atheist? Yep, I'm an atheist. I said, well, that's interesting. That's interesting that you're an atheist. I said, have you ever considered 
the existence of God on the basis of his witness to us through creation. I wasn't talking about creation versus evolution. I was talking about the stars, the planets, the things we see around us. We give testimony of God's existence. So I just simply asked him that. Have you ever considered that? And his reply to me was this. He says, that's not scientific. And I looked at him and I said, I think you better think that one over again. The creation that we live in is not scientific. It's here. It's real. It's all around us. He used to go to church. Until he was 14. Somebody got a hold of him through science falsely so-called and convinced him that God doesn't even exist. So I'm just issuing a warning tonight. Don't let science, falsely so-called, convince you that God is not real. God is real. Even if all the scientists on the face of the earth stood up in unity and said, there is no God, God is still real. And the truth of the matter is there are plenty of scientists that do believe that God is real. And then secondly, let me also challenge you not to let science falsely so-called persuade you that the Bible is not true or trustworthy in what it says. Remember now, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. When it touches on science, though, it is accurate. It's reliable in all that it says. See, we have a trustworthy Bible. We have a trustworthy Bible. For truth. Jesus once prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17 and verse 17. And he's praying to the Father and he said, Sanctify them, my disciples, through thy word. Thy word is truth. My friend, if you want to know the truth, turn to the word of God. Because not everything represented in science is true. There is science falsely so-called. And my last encouragement to you and challenge to you is don't let science falsely so-called persuade you not to believe on Jesus Christ to be your Savior and your only hope to heaven. We all have a common need on this earth. And that common need is for salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. Look in Acts chapter 4, if you would please. The book of Acts in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 12, notice what the Word of God says. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 12, the Bible says, Neither is there salvation any other. Well, let me give you a chance to get there. Acts chapter 4, if you would please. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. The Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men. Now I want you to see the last expression of the verse. 
whereby we, what's the next word? Must what? Saved. In the Bible, when God looks down upon all of humanity on the face of the earth, He sees us all as sinners in need of a Savior. And it says, you are folks down there that if you want to come to my presence one of these days and spend eternity in heaven with me, you must be saved. I heard that term saved for many years of my life and didn't really understand what it meant. The word saved simply means to be delivered. And it means to be delivered from spending an eternity in hell. You see, the truth of the matter is the Bible teaches that we're all sinners in God's sight. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As sinners, God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. What do we deserve because of our sin? We deserve death. We deserve to die and be eternally separated from God forever in the everlasting lake of fire. We deserve nothing more than that. Pastor Lang said something to me yesterday. He says, you deserve better than this. And I said, no, I don't. If I got what I deserved, I'd die and go to hell. If you, deserved what you, if you got what you deserved, you would die and go to hell. If every individual on the face of the earth got what they deserved, they'd all die and go to hell. And that's why Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, you must be saved. You must be delivered from that penalty of death. And the truth of the matter is there's not anything that you and I can, that can, we can do that can deliver ourselves. Jesus is the Savior. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Let me use this illustration to help you out or help you understand what I'm trying to say. We have a huge lake down where I live. It's called Lake Murray. And let's say that I was out on Lake Murray in a boat and my boat sank. And let's just say that I didn't, I didn't know how to swim and there was no life jacket on the boat. Now that's illegal. I understand that, but I'm on an illegal boat. It sinks. And I have no life jacket. I don't know how to swim. What am I in the process of doing? Drowning. I'm out in that lake, and if I'm drowning in the middle of that lake, I'm not going to dry, drown quietly. I'm going to scream, I'm going to yell, I'm going to spit, and I'm going to spur and do everything I can until I finally go to under for the third time. I'm out. Strike three, you're out, right? So I start yelling, help! And let's say Micaiah hears me. He's in a boat out on the lake. And he comes over to me, racing over to me. He sees me drowning. He says, what's wrong with you, man? I said, I'm drowning. <laughs> Help! He says, I got just what you need. He searches around his, bo- um, um, his boat. He finds a book. Three easy lessons on how to swim. He throws that book to me. Says, read real quick. Follow the instructions. Head that direction about a mile and a half. And you'll be safe. And he pulls off in his boat. Is Micaiah a savior? He sure is not, is he? He's not a savior. He's not a savior at all. What am I doing? I'm still drowning. So Cassia hears me drowning. She's out in her boat. And she comes up, pulls up in her boat, says, what's going on? Help! I'm drowning! She dives into the water. She starts swimming circles around me. And starts giving me swimming lessons. She gets back up in her boat and says, Now follow my example. Go that direction about a mile and a half. You'll be, you'll be okay. She pulls off. Is she a savior? She's not a savior, is she? Somebody else comes along and gets me uh, out of the water. And actually puts me in their boat. 
and heads toward shore. And I get about a half mile from shore, and I get so excited that I start jumping up and down in the boat, man. Hey, I want to be safe. All right. And whoever it was gets upset with me and takes the paddle and knocks me overboard, and I'm back out in the lake. And what am I doing? Drowning. Would that person be a savior? No. The only person that would be a savior is somebody who comes along and hears me. Now, I can't save myself because I'm drowning. I don't know how to swim. Right? I need someone to save me. So somebody comes along, takes me out of the water, takes me all the way to shore. That's a savior. Jesus Christ did not come to give us a book. He didn't come to show us an example. He didn't come to take us part way to shore. He came to be a savior. We're drowning in sin. We have no way of saving ourselves. But the precious Son of God went to a cross. He died in our place. He paid our sin debt. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And the Bible says, if you by faith will accept Jesus Christ to be your way to heaven, you will be saved. Look over in John chapter 1, if you would please. In John chapter 1, I'm just sharing that here tonight because perhaps there's someone here tonight that's not certain that you're going to heaven when you die. My friend, salvation's not anything that you can do yourself. You're in a drowning situation. You cannot deliver yourself from your sin. The wages of sin is death. Going to church is wonderful to do, but going to church doesn't pay for your sin. Being good is great to do, but it doesn't pay for your sin. Getting baptized, nothing wrong with it in its rightful place, but it doesn't pay for your sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Christ Himself paid that penalty on our behalf. Jesus Christ alone can save us. It's not by works of righteousness which we do. It's according to His mercy that He saves us. And in John chapter 1, in verse 11, we made reference to that verse this morning. He came into His own. Christ came into His own, but His own received Him not. They rejected Him. Verse 12 says, But, 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 as many as what? Would receive Him to them... He would give the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And believing on His name is just explaining how you receive Christ. You receive Christ by believing He's the Son of God who came to this earth to save you from your sin. You're believing on Him. You're receiving Him. God, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved from sin's penalty of death. I can't save myself. But your son can because of what he did for me on the cross. By a simple act of faith, God, I accept your son Jesus to be my Savior. And that very moment, you're born into the family of God. You become a child of God. God gives you eternal life. And he says he'll never, ever, ever cast you out. One last verse and we're done. John chapter uh, 10, please. John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, look with me. In John chapter 10. I'm just saying, don't let oppositions of of science, falsely so-called, keep you from accepting Christ as Savior. Convincing you that the Bible's not true, it's not accurate, God's not real. You don't need that salvation stuff through Jesus Christ. No, my friend, God is real, the Bible is true, and we all need this salvation stuff through Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus said to those that would accept Him, I give unto them 
What kind of life? Eternal life. And the promise is, once you have eternal life, you will never perish. And he says, and neither shall any man pluck you out of my what? The very moment you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are found in the hand of Christ. He is holding on to you. It's not a, fact, a matter of you holding on to Him. It's a fact that He is holding on to you. And verse 29 says, And the Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Not only are we found in the hand of Jesus, we're found in the hand of the Father. And once we're saved, we are saved and safe and secure for all of eternity. Isn't that a wonderful Savior? He is a wonderful Savior. So I've given you a lot to think about tonight. If you have questions, please see me. I'll be hanging around. Be more than happy to talk to you. Any questions you might have. If you're here, you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your way to heaven. Would you let tonight be your night of salvation? Don't put it off. Don't think it's Christ plus what you do. The Bible says, but to him that worketh not, but rather believes on Christ who justifies the ungodly. It's your faith, your faith in Christ that's counted for righteousness, not your works. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by Christ and our works. We're saved by faith in Jesus alone. Let's pray. Well, heads are bowed and eyes are closed.